My name is Joshua Hill, and this is Existentialism Through Film, an analysis of Unbroken, the unbelievable true story. The subtitle of this film is The Unbelievable True Story. In my personal opinion, I feel as though it could have been an existential journey instead. And I chose this film not only because I really enjoyed watching it, I think it's a great film, but also I believe the nature of the story as one of survival and making it through hardships and strife and living through the impossible makes it ripe for existential motifs. And the subject of the film, Louis Zamperini, is in my eyes a poster child for existentialism. To provide a little bit of a background, this film is the story of Louis Lou Zamperini. He's an Italian-American Olympic distance runner who went to the Olympics in 1936. And during World War II, he was a bombardier for the United States military. During his time as a bombardier in the United States military, he and a crew of his men are given a spare parts plane, is the way they describe it. It's a plane that really shouldn't have been able to fly, and they are sent to go search for men lost at sea in the Pacific. And they end up crashing into the ocean, and Lou Zamperini becomes one of three survivors of that plane wreck. During these 47 days at sea, Zamperini and the pilot of the plane named Phil in the film are the only two to actually survive all 47 days. The other soldier with them does not make it. He is overcome by the exposure of the event and survives two to three weeks, roughly, during their time at sea. And at the end of the little 47-day journey that they take, they are picked up by a group of Japanese sailors, which they quote as being a good and a bad thing. The next two years, they become prisoners of war, and the rest of the film is broken up into three sections of these three different prisoner camps that Zamperini is forced to live and work in. To briefly summarize these three prison camps that they go through, in the first, right after they're picked up by the Japanese sailors, Zamperini and Phil are held in an isolation camp in the jungle. And this is where the Japanese begin to question them, interrogate them. They beat them and starve them. In the second camp, Zamperini and Phil are separated and they won't actually see each other for quite a while. Zamperini goes to a camp where he meets Corporal Watanabe, a.k.a. the bird. The bird will become this driving force for the existentialist experiences in Zamperini's life. And he is the instigator of many of these little existential motifs. And it's in this camp that Zamperini is integrated into the culture of the prisoners. And he discovers that there's almost a fellowship amongst them. And again, he is beaten and starved and isolated and particularly humiliated by the bird who sees him as one to pick on in particular. And eventually the bird gets a promotion and moves away. The lives of the prisoners get a little bit easier and then the Allies bomb the city nearby, and their prison camp is actually shut down, and they're forced to move to a different prisoner of war camp, which is centered around this coal factory. And this new camp is run by no other than the Bird, who by now has this very perverse friendship with Zamperini, is the way he sees it. And this is where the prisoners are forced to work coal barges and carry heavy bags full of coal up a massive hill 
while they're being beaten, while they're being starved, and in these horrible conditions. From here, we're going to go ahead and dive into the film, and we're going to segment it into those four parts, the days at sea and then each prison camp. And in each one of these parts, we are going to analyze the film through existentialism. We're going to look at the different parts of each particular section, and we're going to see how they fit different existentialist motifs and where parts of the film are almost homologous to those existentialist thinkers saw the way from the beginning with Kierkegaard, Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, up until the more modern day with Sartre and De Beauvoir and Fanon, MME. After we analyze each part, we're going to go ahead and look at the film as a whole and really see what pieces of existentialism aren't in just one section, but rather flow throughout the entire movie. So, 47 Days at Sea. This is the kickstart to the existential journey. This is where Zamperini, Phil, and Mac, who is the third soldier that doesn't survive this experience at sea, discover the meaninglessness of life. They, it's an idea put forward by various existential writers, particularly Sartre and being a nothingness. But this is proven to the three survivors of the plane wreck as they're just abandoned for dead out at sea, and they don't see more than one plane fly over, which flies over and doesn't notice them despite their best efforts. And one of the most prevalent threads of existentialism in this film is Zamperini fighting against this meaninglessness. He's fighting to assign meaning in his seemingly meaningless world. Very similar to the ideas before by Kierkegaard in terms of assignment of meaning and the ways in which the creation of meaning can only be done by the self and it has to be done by the individual. Otherwise, there is no meaning to the world. There is no meaning to life. And this shows up, like I said, again and again. For example, in the life raft, which they are surviving on these two life rafts at sea, Louis gives this speech of hope to his fellow survivors after they begin to lose sight of the end of their suffering. In response to Mac, one of the fellow survivors, saying, it doesn't matter, nothing matters, life does not matter, Zamperini has this moment of inspiration in which he stands up and he tells Mac that life is not predetermined and that even if life hands you a hard situation, you are the one responsible for making the best of it, moving on with your life and finding that meaning. And this statement aligns Zamperini with the early existentialist thinkers such as Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky. And similar to these early existentialist writers, Zamperini and Phil, two weeks into their time at sea, begin to have this discussion on the existence of God and questioning this existence and whether religion really is worthwhile or not. And Zamperini is this non-religious man. He asks Phil, who is a Christian, why they survived when the others didn't. Why would a god let something like that happen in his grand plan? And why were they here now on earth? And Phil, who, like I said, is a Christian, responds, and I quote, Here's the plan. You go on living the best you can. You try to have some fun along the way. Then one day it's over. You wake up and there's an angel sitting at the edge of your bed. End quote. 
the situation of questioning the existence of God and the meaning of life and why why God are we here is one of the most existentially based questions that the existentialists try to answer. And this is, again, where Zamperini is going through this existential journey, the way I like to put it. And additionally, when you look at their situation as a whole, there are these men lost at sea. The scope of their world is two yellow rafts and water. And this forces the realization of the absurdity of their life upon them. And existentially, this is very, very similar to Albert Camus' concept of absurdity, which he defines as, and I quote, the benign indifference of the universe, end quote. And you can really tell how these men lost at sea, stuck in the middle of the ocean on these two life rafts, they can get this sense that the universe is uncaring, it's unfeeling, and in a way it is indeed benign. And the nature of their crash landing is this visceral example of Heidegger's being thrown into the world. And it's really interesting to see the ways that their journey is almost purely analogous to the thought processes of Heidegger, of Camus, as they develop these ideas. And eventually this absurdity, this being thrown into the world becomes too much for one of the survivors, Mac, who admits that he thinks he will die soon, that life actually has lost all meaning to him. And in the next scene in the film, we see Zamperini and Phil give him a burial at sea. Now we're going to move on to the first prison camp. This is right after they've been picked up by the Japanese soldiers. They have just spent 47 days exposed at sea and the movie doesn't spend a lot of time here, but I believe it really lays the groundwork for the remaining existential moments in these early, early prison day moments. So here we see the master-slave dialectic, and this is between Zamperini and his captors, and it's this picture-perfect example of the colonizer-colonized situation developed by Albert Mami in The Colonizer and the Colonized. As Zamperini is subjugated and he's made to feel less than human by his captors and they're made to feel less than the captors themselves. And in these early prison days, he's forced to see himself through the eyes of the other and suffers the effects of dislocation as it's described by Fanon in Black Skin, White Masks as a form of almost self-objectification and specifically in terms of Fanon. He describes it as a way in which he discovered his blackness. And in terms of the situation with Zamperini, it's more of a discovery of the self as a prisoner. And it being forced to see himself in this manner as through the eyes of the other and as an object, not as an actual human being, Zamperini establishes himself as a fighter and a resistor. He doesn't sit idly by and accept the role of the colonized and instead he begins these little mini revolts. He never goes into a full stage of actual revolt as described by Memi, but he does have these little things he does to get back at the captors and get back at the people holding him. And one of these is his refusal to tell them about the operating system of his bomber. He actually draws a Philco radio instead. And in this way, he's already beginning to utilize that concept developed by Mimi of revolt 
as a way to reject his position of being a colonized person. Now, like I said, the film doesn't spend a lot of time in the first prison camp, so unfortunately there's not a lot to pull from that, but we do get to see those two key points. And so now going into the second prison camp, Zamperini meets the bird. And in his first interactions with this prison leader, we experience this cinematically beautiful moment of the use of Sartre's The Gaze from being nothingness. Zamperini is told to look at the bird as he's standing in this line. And he looks up and he meets the eyes of the bird. And that's a moment where he's literally meeting the gaze of the other. And then the bird strikes him and knocks him to the ground and tells him to get up. And he gets up, and this is repeated three times. And it only stops when the bird tells him not to look at him, for he is not worthy. He is not capable of looking into his eyes, looking into the eyes of the other. And in this metaphor, Zamperini is once again subjugated by the gaze of the other. He's forced to see himself as less than the other, in this case, the bird. And he's being trained to not even attempt to meet the gaze, not even to fight back. but this is where he really begins to realize just how absurd his position is and how absurd his reality has become as one that has been forced into the role of the colonized. And his subjugation by the gaze of the other, it's homologous to the situations described by Beauvoir, Fanon, and Mimi in their writings. It's homologous to the situation of women in a male-dominated society and it's homologous to the situation of black men in a white society and of, obviously, the colonized in a world ruled by the colonizer. And it's here in this second prison camp that we, the audience, as well as Zamperini and his fellow soldiers, learn about the kill-all order. And this is a way to compound the absurdity of his reality. This is where we learn that the Japanese have been told that if they seem to be losing the war if they have any fears that the prison camp might be taken by the allies or that the war itself might be lost they are to shoot and kill all prisoners instead of letting the allies free them and knowing this knowing that zamperini's life would either end with him being worked to death in a japanese prison camp or shot if his countrymen won the war the absurdity of this world that he lives in just increases exponentially. And his drive to live, despite being presented with possibly the most bleak outlook and the fewest reasons to go on imaginable, is really representative of this fight to reject the absurdity, to reject his cruel and unjust world, and to fight back against this idea that he can be pushed into a position or pigeonholed into a role, particularly that of the colonized. The last part of this prison camp number two, um, we see this relationship develop between Zamperini and the bird. Zamperini's repeatedly told, you are nothing. Your life means nothing. And in fighting against this, fighting against the absurdity of his world and rejecting that cruelty, the bird begins to, as he sees it, recognize Zamperini as a brother. The bird sees Zamperini and himself as these strong fighters and noble men, despite the differences in their power and the power dynamic that is inherently presented between the two as this relationship of the colonizer and the colonized. But 
the bird here in his viewpoint is attempting to justify these terrible actions that he's doing and the way that he treats the prisoners and make them seem more acceptable, not only to himself, but to Zamperini, to the fellow prisoners, because he wants to justify them. And this is similar to the way that the colonizer attempts to justify his actions against the colonized. Again, as described by Mimi and the colonizer and the colonized. And by trying to justify these actions, again, he is proving to not only us and the prisoners, but to himself that he recognizes that this isn't right, that something about that power dynamic must be wrong. From here, we're going to go ahead and move on to the third prison camp. This is after the bird is promoted. This is after their life gets better and then very quickly goes downhill again as they're brought to the next camp run by the bird, which is again that coal factory. And in this third camp, Zamperini is at his absolute lowest. Upon arriving with his fellow prisoners from the second prison camp, the barracks leader, who is a British officer in charge, escape his fate. The idea that he must fit into this role of the meek prisoner going around doing whatever the bird wants him to do or doing whatever the people above him want him to do, or that the world is as absurd as it seems, is impossible to Zamperini. He rejects it outright. And in resisting this pigeonholing attempt by the barracks leader, this attempt to tell him, it'll get better if you just accept it and fit that role. Zamberini again aligns himself with Beauvoir, Fanon, and me. He aligns himself with the idea that change is possible of the place in which the prisoners are going to be kept, tells them that there's no hope coming. And I quote, no one knows that you are here. No one knows that you need help and you will die here without seeing your home again. It is best if you just resign yourself to your fate, end quote. Obviously, knowing Zamperini's character, he rejects this idea that he cannot escape. Uh, just as a reminder, in this camp, the prisoners are made to carry this coal from barges down at a river up to a storage and transport facility on this large hill. And in this very powerful cinematic moment, Zamperini displays the person of Sisyphus, whom Camus describes, and I quote, as the absurd hero, end quote. He's carrying this immensely heavy burden, this big bag of coal, representative of the boulder, to the top of a hill, only to have it tossed down for him to repeat again and again. And the motif of absurdity is brought up yet again as we see this situation in which Zamperini is doing this work, this labor. He's absurdly carrying coal, this endless amount, similar to the story of Sisyphus, who rolls the boulder up the hill, just have it fall back down. And similar to Camus' interpretation of Sisyphus, it is the scorn of his oppressors that keeps driving Zamperini to live and to continue existence. One of the most famous scenes of this film is the one in which Zamperini stands with the sunlight in front of him and you see his silhouette. He's malnourished, filthy, and broken. And he has this railroad tie across his shoulders that the bird has made him hold for rep refusing to carry this coal any longer after one of the Japanese soldiers pushes him down the hill and it nearly breaks his ankle. And Zamperini lifts the railroad tie above his head and screams his defiance 
And in this moment, Zamperini raises his eyes to meet those of the bird, again, quite literally meeting the gaze of the other, and this time in determination and defiance. And this is Zamperini's ultimate rejection of the absurd, of the forced position of the colonized, and of the gaze of the other, in meeting the eyes of the bird. Zamperini rejects the role assigned to him by that other. He no longer sees himself as the other sees him, no longer sees himself as an object or as something that is less than human. And instead, he sees himself as the Olympian and champion that he knows himself to be. He understands himself the way that he used to before he was subjected to the gaze. And in doing so, he rediscovers his essence. And that comes from Sartre's existentialism as a humanism in which he provides us with that statement. And I quote, existence precedes essence, end quote. And this is where Zamperini is rediscovering who he is at his core through this hardship. After this ultimate rejection of the absurd, rejection of a situation, the allies come in, take over the camp, and the movie essentially ends. And so now we're going to begin our overarching considerations. We're going to look at the film as a whole and look at what was really repetitive and maybe draw some things that weren't particularly in one situation, but rather are taken as a thread throughout the whole film. And my favorite existentialist theme that I believe can be found in this film is the role of Zamperini as Kierkegaard's Knight of Faith. And while Zamperini is not religious and he can't rely on faith during this experience to get him through the hardships that he feels, he does make a leap of faith. And acting on Kierkegaard's idea of, and I quote, acting by virtue of the absurd, end quote, he manages to survive. Zamperini's leap of faith is one of hope. Despite all the hardships, despite all the reasons to quit, all the obstacles in his way, the absurdity of his world, Zamperini holds faith in the idea that he will come home to his family once again. He had faith in the impossible, and this faith was rewarded. In a hopeless situation, Zamperini found hope, and in doing so, survived. The second theme that we really, really saw repeat throughout each one of the prison camps was the colonizer and the colonized. And we've gone through the different ways in which the story displays that idea through Zamperini and the bird and in the initial prison camp. But a quote from Zamperini himself upon his return to the United States, I feel best illuminates just how dehumanizing this experience was from the perspective of the colonized. And a quote from an interview after his return to the United States is, quote, I could take the physical punishment but it was the attempt to destroy your dignity, to make you a non-entity that was the hardest thing to bear, end quote, which comes from a New York Times article released upon his death. The idea of a non-entity, that is what I really want to harp on. The idea that he was not human, that he was not the same as the other, the fact that he no longer owned himself in the eyes of the other, that shows just how dehumanizing the perspective of the colonized really is. And it shows how far the colonizers really will go to force the colonized to fit that role. And Mimi actually has a quote about this as well. He says in The Colonized and the Colonized, and I quote, the humanity of the colonized, once rejected by the colonizer, becomes opaque, end quote. 
And once the colonizer has so much power over the colonized that they are able to reject their humanity and make them into less than human and pseudo-human, it really is proof of that power dynamic and just how far it goes. The third thing that we saw prevalent throughout the film was the absurdity of the situation. It's a very large existentialist motif in this story. And what I found to be extremely interesting is that in addition to the absurd world that Zamperini was thrust into with his horrible treatment and the cruel situation, there's absurdity in his survival. The fact that his leap of faith paid off in the face of repeated starvation, beatings, isolation to the gaze of the other and being seen as an object, dehumanization, being forced to subject, making it so that he could survive and make it back home is in and of itself absurd just to conceptualize. And he credits a good portion of that survival to the scorn he felt for his captors again, reifying that idea of Sisyphus. But it's this feeling that his situation was so absurd that survival itself becomes absurd. You see just how prevalent that theme really is in this film. Finally, the overarching theme of existence precedes essence, that bumper sticker statement to describe existentialism from Sartre's Existentialism is a Humanism can be found in this story. Zamperini discovers his essence through his childhood hardships of bullying and being picked on, then rediscovers it as he's forced into the situation that colonized. In discovering himself and determining the meaning behind his own life, being forced to create that meaning in what he interpreted to be almost a meaningless world, he rejects the absurdity of his world. He rejects the gaze of the other. And in this way, I feel he truly does become that poster child for existentialism. He becomes what the existentialists believe. That will conclude our analysis of this film. To summarize the ideas here in this podcast, there were many existentialist themes in the story. And the most prominent are absurdity and the master-slave or the colonized-colonizer relationship in that dialectic between the two. Uh, The gaze of the other comes up again and again. And then finding or creating meaning when the world seems meaningless is something that Zamperini finds himself having to do time and time again as he is put through these trials and issues. And finally, utilizing scorn, similar to Sisyphus, as a driving force to continue life and rejecting the other trying to assign you to a role of subjugation comes up again and again in this film. This has been Existentialism Through Film, an analysis of Unbroken, the unbelievable true story, or an existential journey. Again, my name is Joshua Hill, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast.